So uh, some of you guys, uh, I think Grace and Jack, did y'all go see John, Chris? And, uh, yeah, you met him? I got gotcha. you. Very cool. Um, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, it's sad, but funny because we don't actually have a virtual reality church, but we have tried to kind of make church about us. Um, and that's not a new phenomenon. People for, for centuries have been making church and life about them. And that's really kind of where I want us to, to be this semester is to look at what church, the church, not just our local church and not just the experience, but what church in general was always supposed to be about. I want us to get back to, to the heart of that and, and try to understand what it's supposed to look like for us. And I think the best way for us to do that is to go back to the very beginning um, and go back to the book of Acts where the church first begins to take off. We see um, what we're going to see in just a second is really the last thing that Jesus tells the disciples before he ascends back into heaven. And we're going to see kind of what he charges the disciples with to go and to really begin the first church. And then we're going to get to see what the first church begins to look like. And when I say first church, I don't mean like the first building that a group of people built on a corner in, in town, but what the church, what the collection of believers, people who saw Jesus with their very own eyes and people who heard firsthand accounts of what Jesus did, what that movement began to look like, what it looked like in the first century, um, what they experienced in the first century. And then I want us to see not just historically what it looked like, but how that translates to us today. And so we're going to spend the entire semester really going through the book of Acts. The book of Acts has 28 chapters. We have 14 weeks this semester that we'll meet. And so we're going to really have to fly through it. There's going to be some stuff that we have to skip past. Doesn't mean it's not important. Doesn't mean that we don't need to be reading it. What I would encourage you to do is to read along through Acts with me. Um, what I'm doing is I am essentially reading the book of Acts every three days. Uh, I've broken Acts into three parts, and so I'm going to read it over and over again this semester. Um, and so um, I have read through Acts several times already in preparation and study for it uh, for this semester, and I'm going to continue to read through it. And so what I want to challenge you to do is you have 14 weeks, really longer than that, because I'm taking out you know spring break and Mardi Gras and times where we won't meet. Um, but you have really 16 to 18 weeks to read 28 chapters, which is not, not very hard to do. Um, but I would encourage you to read through Acts um, because, again, there's going to be some stuff that we have to skip over, um, but I don't want you to miss any of it. Um, I think it's going to be um, hopefully very, very helpful, very uh, beneficial. So I want us to look in Acts chapter 1 tonight. We're going to focus in on one key verse, which is Acts 1 verse 8, which is hopefully a familiar passage for you. But I want us to, we're not going to read the whole chapter tonight just because we don't have enough time. But I want us to read the first eight verses together, and then I want us to just kind of to look at a few things. We're going to look at five points, and they're all going to begin with the letter P. Don't tell Stuart, um, because he'll get great satisfaction out of the fact that I used alliteration tonight. Um, so let's, uh, let's start together in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, okay? It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Let's just stop right there real quickly. He says in the first book, okay, we think we're actually pretty sure that Luke wrote this book, okay? And so he's saying to this guy, Theophilus, he's telling him in the first book, which, what book would that be, you think? Actually, it's in the first book that he wrote, which, guess what it was called? 
Luke. Yes, okay. Luke wrote this gospel, and he says in the first in the first book that I wrote, okay, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. You got that one. That is very good. In the beginning, you were thinking, all right, I hear you, all right. In the first book that I wrote, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, right? The gospel of Luke is an account of what Jesus has done and what he's taught, okay? So now he's saying in the second book, okay, here's what's coming. Verse 2, it says, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen... He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in verse 6, it says, so when they had come together, them being the disciples, minus Judas, who was no longer around uh, for obvious reasons, uh, so the Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, so they're asking essentially, is Jesus, is this it? Now that you've died and you've come back, is this now where you are going to reign victoriously over heaven and create new heaven and new earth? Is this the, is this the end? Okay, and then he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8 which is where we'll focus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. We're gonna keep reading through verse 11. It says, and when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so we're going to look at verse 8. But this, this is the scene. The disciples are gathered around. Jesus is present. He has been crucified. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. He spent around 40 days with the disciples, proving to them in various ways that he is the risen Christ. They've seen the scars in his hands. Remember Thomas, he's eaten food with them, right? Uh, he's, he's had this time where he spent with them, and they have had evidence of his life on earth, They've seen his death, they've seen him resurrected, and now have proof evidence that the same man that they spent three years of ministry with has, in fact, come back from the dead and is as much alive now as he ever was before. They've had this experience with him. And so before he ascends back into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, he has this moment with them where he gives them this challenge or this charge. And we find that in Acts 1.8, and it's a challenge or a call or a command for these disciples, but it's the same command that he's giving to us today. And that's why it's so important for us to read and to study the book of Acts together, because the same challenge that he gives the disciples, he's calling us to today, okay? And so we're going to spend the rest of our time really focused in on verse 8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. I, I found this, um, this quote by this, uh, this guy. He, uh, when I was your age, he was like one of the cool centrifuge pastors, okay? So when you were planning to go to youth camp, he was one of the pastors. Um, and he's now a, a pastor of a church in North Carolina and a, a professor and author and this kind of deal. His name's Tony Morita, and he, he, wrote, he wrote this. And he says that, that Acts is really the story of ordinary people of God equipped with the power, uh, equipped with the word of God 
empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, dedicated to the Son of God, who can accomplish the mission of God. It's, it's a lot of parts, but essentially what he says is that the story of the early church, okay, and the story of the modern church today is that it's just a bunch of ordinary people, people of God who are equipped or possess the word of God, scripture. They receive their power through the Holy Spirit, which is of God, and they then worship and honor the Son of God, Jesus, and in all of that, they are now able to accomplish the mission of God. And this is the mission of, of God here. This is what God has called us to, is Acts 1.8. He's called us to be witnesses, his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And we're going to talk about what all that means in just a second. But I want us to see that this message of Acts was for ordinary, everyday people who believed in God, who had been born again and redeemed by Jesus Christ. They had encountered Jesus, and as a result of that, God empowers them through the Holy Spirit to go and to do incredible things. Guys, when we read the book of Acts together over the next several weeks, we're going to see some incredible things happen. Next week, we're going to look at this thing called Pentecost, where this regular old dude named Peter. You guys remember Peter from, from the Gospels? Tell me something you know about Peter. He's an interesting guy. Up and down is putting it mildly, yes. He had some peaks and valleys. Ian's absolutely right. Name a, name a, a kind of a peak or a, a mountaintop experience for Peter. What was a, a good moment for Peter? Yeah, he actually was really the first person to really get who Jesus was, right? And, and we have that famous response where, where Jesus is like, absolutely right, and I'm going to build my kingdom on this foundation. It's on this truth that I'm going to build everything. Peter was a sharp guy some of the time. Now, what was a low point? When he denies Jesus three times, remember? Jesus is like, hey, Peter, by the way, you were going to deny me three times. Like, Peter, no, nah, bro, I love you. I love you, Jesus. I would never do that. And then, boom, denial, 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 right? He got a little scared that he was going to get crucified with Jesus. He's like, nah, I don't know that, dude. You must have me confused with somebody. Yeah, who is, who is this guy? Right? And then also, remember, Peter is the one who starts to walk on the water. Jesus is walking on water. Peter's like, hey, if it's, if it, Lord, if it's really you, call me out to walk on the water. Right? And he's the only one that has the faith to get out of the boat and walk on water. But he also takes his eyes off Jesus. He's distracted by the winds and waves, and he begins to drown. And Jesus has to pull him out of the water and put him back in the boat. Ups and downs. Peter was an ordinary dude. But we'll see next week at the Pentecost that Peter preaches this incredible sermon and thousands Thousands of people come to know Jesus, and we have what becomes the very first church as a result of what Peter does in faithfulness to God. So this message of Acts, the first church, is for ordinary people. Hey, guys, look to your left and look to your right. You are ordinary people, all right? I am an ordinary person. Some of you are special in very special ways, but by and large, you are ordinary. I know your mommy tells you that you're special, um, and you are. Um, yes, in different ways sometimes, but you are also ordinary, and I am ordinary. And God wants to, and has from the very beginning of time, used very ordinary people. And that's the story that we have, is ordinary people empowered by the Holy Spirit of God who can accomplish incredible things through their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want us to see. But I want us to look at, at five different um, points in just a second. But first, I want us to see this, a very important word in this. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Witness. What does that word mean? What is a witness? If we're using it as a, as a noun. Someone who saw something. Okay? Someone who has experienced something. You can testify to a, a, a certain truth. Yeah, those are all great answers, right? When you think of the word witness, what picture automatically comes to mind? Okay, someone being questioned or in court, right? We have a witness stand, right? So either they're filling out a police report or they're in court testifying to something they either saw or heard or whatever, right? This idea of a witness is someone who has seen, heard, or experienced something and is giving an account of it, right? That's the basic idea of a witness. And God here, Jesus in particular, is calling us to be a witness of what we have seen what we have heard, and what we have experienced. That's what he's calling the disciples to. He says, hey guys, you have been traveling around with me for the last several years. You have seen incredible things. You've seen me walk on water. You've seen me turn water into wine. You've seen me heal the lame, give sight to the blind. You've seen me bring Lazarus back from the dead. You saw me crucified and resurrected, and you have evidence that I am who I say that I am. You've seen, heard, experienced all these things. Now I want you to be a witness of that, to give an account, to testify about what it is that you've seen and heard, and not only what you've seen me do, but also what you have seen me do in your life, how what I have done as as Jesus Christ, Son of God, what I have done to transform your life, and he's calling disciples to tell that, and he's calling you and me to do the same. So I want us to look at a few things, okay? Okay. First of all, I want us to see the people who witness, okay? So these are all going to start with the letter P. So the people who witness. Who is it that are, are called to be witnesses? Who in particular is Jesus calling to be witnesses? Is he just calling the disciples to be witnesses? No, he's calling all believers to be witnesses. So if, if you're looking at the, the who, who is to be a witness, it's all believers. The people who are called to be witnesses are all believers, And the point here, guys, is that this isn't just left up to a select few people. If your life has been transformed by Jesus Christ, if you have experienced the grace and the mercy of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been called to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And there's not an age limit or an age requirement. There's not an experience level necessary. There's not some kind of training or education that has to go with it. If you have been redeemed, rescued by Jesus Christ, you have been called to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Whether you're 13, whether you are 35, whether you are 55, no matter where you come from, if you grew up in the church or this is the first time, um, you know, if if you are just now becoming a believer, it doesn't matter. God has called us to be a witness for him. And here's the thing. If you are a believer in God, you are a witness whether you have chosen to be or not at this point. So the things that you say and do, whether you are intentionally pointing people to Jesus or accidentally pointing people away from Jesus, your life is a living testimony to the God that you claim to serve. Does that make sense? So whether you are actively trying to be a witness for God or not, once you begin to say, hey, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, once you step into a baptistry, once you start wearing a a Disciple Now t-shirt, once you go on choir tour, whatever it is, 
Once you begin to tell people that you are a Jesus person, you become a witness, whether good or bad, right? Think about that courtroom scene, right? A witness may get up there on the, on the stand to testify on behalf of the defendant, right? To, to be a witness for the defense. But what gets to happen, that prosecutor gets to cross-examine them, right? And gets to say, hey, let me begin to, to get into this story that you're giving me a little bit. Let me begin to ask you some questions about it. I had somebody send me a text message the other day, a student, um, you know, talking about how do I, I have a friend that's trying to convert to Islam. How do, I, how do I have this conversation with them about why they shouldn't convert to Islam, right? So this, this person is, is now asking them questions um, about what it really means to be a Christian because they're wrestling with, should I believe this or should I believe that? And all of a sudden, they're, they're having to be a witness for Jesus to someone who says, maybe there's more truth to this than there is to that. God has called all people, all believers, rather, to be a witness, okay? But there's also this, this idea, um, actually, I wrote this down, um, and I thought, it was, I thought it was pretty good. The only difference between an American sitting at home um, here in America and a foreign missionary is location and not identity, okay? We think about missionaries who are off-serving. You'll, when you go to Miami on choir tour, you, you will partner with someone who is a missionary to Miami. There are missionaries uh, in countries all around the globe right now, right? Uh, missionaries everywhere, their, their sole purpose and focus is to be a missionary to a certain people group. The only difference between you and them is where you are, not your identity or not your role. You are called to be a missionary at Daphne High School, at Spanish Fort Middle, you know, um, at, at Bayside or Bayshore at your home school, at, at Sanford or Southern Miss or, or, or uh, Coastal Alabama, wherever you are, you are called to be a missionary where you are. So again, the only difference is location, okay? Not necessarily what you're actually um, doing. So there's the people who witness, but there's also the path of a witness, which is suffering, which is super awesome to think about, right? Sounds awesome. Suffering sounds amazing. What we're gonna see in Acts also is that there's a lot of people that have to suffer in order to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Think about this guy by the name of Stephen. Anybody familiar with Stephen in the book of Acts? What, what do we know about Stephen? He was stoned, right? He was the, the first martyr. And really, in the Greek, this word witness has some other connotations to it. It's not just someone who tells a story, but it really has this connotation of someone who is willing to give their life for Christ. And by give their life, like not just live their life every day, but willing to trade their life for Christ which we see Stephen do. Stephen becomes the first martyr. He's stoned to death, and we'll, we'll see that in just a couple weeks. Stephen was willing to trade his life for the cause of Christ, to be a witness, right? Part of Stephen's witness was standing there helplessly as men killed him for his belief in Jesus Christ. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den as a witness to the power of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to bow down and worship any other God except for Yahweh God. And we see that happen even today in missionaries who give their lives in order for the message of the gospel to be proclaimed. And unfortunately, the path of following Jesus often involves suffering. If you're taking notes, write these passages down. Luke 21, 10 through 19. Luke 21, 10 through 19, John 15, 18 through 27, John 15, 18 through 27. Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, is going to spend a lot of time with this guy by the name of Paul, who suffers for the sake of Christ. He's actually going to visit him in prison, we think, and have conversations 
with Paul about Paul's suffering. Luke himself suffers to a lesser degree, but certainly suffers in the same way for his faith. Guys, there's a hard truth that we have to learn. Part of being a witness for Christ is there's going to come suffering at some point. Now, hopefully you don't get thrown into a lion's den. Hopefully you don't get thrown in prison. Hopefully you don't suffer real persecution. But if you are, there's a, there's a very biblical truth here. If you are actively living out your faith in Christ, there's going to come a point where you suffer as a result of it. That's those passages I just told you about. Jesus tells his followers in the Gospels, if you claim to be a Christ follower and you live that out, there will be a point where you suffer at some point. Whether it's a relationship that doesn't, doesn't end well because of, uh, of what you believe. I talked to a guy today who um, is in a relationship with someone who is not a believer. And as a result, that relationship is suffering because of what he believes is something that she doesn't believe. And at some point, if, if he wants to be in a relationship with this, with this girl, he's going to have to make a choice, right? Either, either we can't be in this relationship together, or we have to have a very difficult conversation about what, what our differences of belief are, because he can't go on in this relationship the way things are. And there's going to come a very difficult choice. And you're going to have those moments in relationships as well, whether it's a dating relationship, a friendship, or whatever. doesn't mean that you can't associate with people that don't believe what you believe, but it means that you can't have those close, intimate relationships uh, like a marriage relationship or, or a best friend relationship and have it be what God intended it for, for it to be if, if we're going two different directions on what we believe. Does that make sense? And so there, there's going to come come points where you have to have difficult conversations. There's going to become a point where what you believe as a Christ follower is going to alienate you from other people. It's, it's going to happen. There's going to come a point where you face things in your life where if you take a stand, and I'm talking about a biblical stand. I'm not talking about, uh, we're going to talk about this a lot in the second now. I'm not talking about a cultural stand where uh, this, is, this is what Christians believe culturally or societally. I'm talking about taking a stand biblically on what's really what Jesus stood for, okay? There's going to come a point where if you do that, it's going to cost you some things in life. And we have to be prepared to do that. Jesus tells us in the New Testament that we, we have to kind of consider the cost. He says that in Luke chapter 9 where there's these three guys. We've talked about this story a lot. There's these three guys who say they want to follow Jesus. And every time Jesus' response is, do you really? Let me tell you what this involves. This first guy approaches him and he says, hey, even foxes have holes to lay down in. Birds have nests to lay in. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you prepared to follow me despite that? You may never have anywhere of comfort to live as a result of following me. Are you really prepared to follow me in that way? All right, and there's another guy that says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but uh, let me bury my, my dad first. He just, he died, and I want to bury him. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the dead worry about the dead. If you want to follow me, then come on and follow me. It's pretty harsh. Another guy says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me go say goodbye to everybody first. And Jesus says, the person who turns their head from the, uh, from the plow is unfit to follow Jesus, to, uh, unfit to follow God. If you would be distracted by something else, if you aren't fully committed to, to following me, then, then maybe you're not really prepared to follow me like you think you are. Jesus says it's, it's difficult. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be suffering. And so we have the people who witness, which is all believers, the path of the witness, which is suffering, but also we have the power 
of a witness, which is the Holy Spirit. We receive our power from the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Luke 24, 49, if you're, if you're taking notes, we're, we, we see Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit. Luke 24, 49. It's the Holy Spirit which is going to set the stage for what Peter does in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 next week. And what we see happen is believers from all over the place gather together. And they're able to hear Peter's message in their own language. People who don't speak the same language hear from one guy speaking one language, but they hear the message in, in their own native tongue, which is crazy. Imagine if I were up here speaking in English and we had 74 different languages and dialects in here. Guys, I only speak one language and I don't do that well. But imagine I speak and present the gospel in English and 74 different tribes and tongues are able to hear that message in their own language. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit in in Acts chapter 2 allows people to hear the message of the gospel. And so you and I receive power to transform people's lives through the Holy Spirit. Your words and my words in and of themselves have no real power. But the Holy Spirit possesses the power of God because he is God to transform people's lives, to move people. Candace has told me this before, and I've heard other people say it. And, but there's a lot of times, I get very discouraged a lot of times when I speak and there's no response. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a lot of times where I speak either in here or on a Sunday morning or wherever, it's at a school or wherever, and, like, y'all and anybody else are just kind of looking back at me. And, like, I could talk for 30 minutes, and, like, I have no idea if you heard anything I said, if you believe anything I said, or if it will have any impact on you at all. But it's this idea that it's not my job to convict you of something, Right? It's not my job to move you to something. I'm called to be faithful to present what God wants me to present. The Holy Spirit is the entity that has the power to convict or to transform. And so all I can do, all we can do as witnesses, is be faithful to give a testimony of who God is and what he's done. And the Holy Spirit is the one who has the power to transform people's lives. I've found that if I'm constantly worried about, well, did anybody get anything out of what I said today? I'm going to beat myself up every day and every week, and I'm I'm just going to live in a life in a world of discouragement. But if I say, God, I want to be faithful to present the gospel and present what you have me to present, and then I'm going to leave the results up to the Holy Spirit, then what all I have to do is worry about my faithfulness, which is hard enough, right? But if I'm wrapped up in, well, did anybody come down the aisle today? Did anybody text me afterwards and say, hey, you really moved me with what you said today? We, I find myself on the slippery slope of, if, if, if that's what I'm worried about, I'm worried about praise of what I've said, of what I've done, rather than, than worried about what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the same can be true for us in one-on-one conversations. If you're having a conversation with a friend at school who's not a believer or someone who's struggling with something, you want to tell them something and have that conversation one time, and you want to have the results, right? Like if Sydney's talking to somebody at school and, and who's struggling with their faith, you know, it would be really rewarding if you had one conversation. They're like, Sydney, you just transformed my life. I'm never going to be the same person again. But in truth, it doesn't happen like that, does it? Not, not usually. Or if it does, you should be up here talking. And I'll come sit down there because you're better than me, right? Or, or if Maddie's having a similar conversation and she says, oh, I've had two conversations with this person. And they just, they're still not a believer. They're still a Hindu after two conversations. 
Yeah, well, you know what? They've grown up in a house where Hinduism is the norm, and, and it's going to take more than two conversations, and it's going to take more than just you. It's going to take the Holy Spirit. It's going to take active prayer, uh, and it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit to transform someone. And so this idea of being a witness, right, it's very easy to be discouraged when you're actively having conversations. But remember that the Holy Spirit has the power to transform people's lives. The Holy Spirit has the power to give you words to say. So we have to be mindful that the Holy Spirit is very real, and it's, it's the presence of God that, that Jesus left here when he ascended back into heaven, and we desperately need it. So we have the people who witness, the path of a witness, the power of a witness, but also the peoples, plural, in need of a witness. The peoples in need of a witness. And so when you use that word, peoples, right, what does that mean? Why is it different than people? Yes. So if you just say people, that's one group of people. When we say peoples, that's multiple groups of people. And so the peoples in need of a witness are the nations. Really what we're saying is everybody needs to hear this witness. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you've grown up in church, you've heard this kind of broken down. Jerusalem, right, was where they lived. It was locally. It was almost like their town. Okay, You think of it as Daphne or Spanish Fort, your local area. So Jesus says, you will be my witnesses where you are, where you live. But you'll also be my witnesses in Judea, the country in which you live. So we try to modernize it a little bit, okay? You will be my witnesses in Daphne or Spanish Fort or Fairhope or wherever it is that you live. But you'll also be my witnesses in Judea or in your country, in America, right? But you'll also be my witnesses in Samaria, all right? Samaritans and Judeans did not get along well, okay? They had very little in common culturally. Uh, there were dif- differences ethnically and differences spiritually. And so this, this gives us this idea that, that not always are you going to be a witness to people that you're comfortable with, people that you look like, people that you talk like, people that speak the same language, people that believe the same things, people that have the same values or norms or, or, or morals or what ethics, whatever, Sometimes you're going to be called to be a witness to people that aren't like you. But also, he says, and even beyond that, to the very ends of the earth. And so included in this is all nations, all peoples. Peoples that you agree with, people that you don't agree with. People that have a lot in common with you, people that have nothing in common with you. So it's going to mean when you go to Miami in in, uh, May or June... Miami is a very diverse city. So you're going to meet a lot of people who uh, came from Cuba to seek refuge here away from a dictatorship in Cuba. You're going to meet Haitians who came here in desperate poverty. Haiti is the, is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. You're going to meet people who have come from uh, somewhere uh, up north in a transplant. You're going to meet people uh, who have come from African nations to try to find a job, to try to find work, to prosper. You're not, catch this. You're going to meet people that came here legally and people who came here illegally. And the call of the gospel is going to be the same for both of them. The need for the gospel is going to be the same for both of them. And we can leave whether or not they should have come here legally or illegal to somebody else to figure out. But the call to witness and to share the gospel is the same. Does that make sense? Because here, this, this word, ends of the earth, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, it covers everyone. 
for all time, in all situations, in all circumstances, you are called, I am called to be a witness. We don't possess some kind of tribal deity. That is, we don't possess some God that's just a God over us, but we, we love and worship and serve a God who is sovereign over all nations. You know, if you go to certain African countries, African people groups or people groups um, in, in the farthest of, of Southeast Asia, you'll find people groups who believe that the God that they worship is just the God over them, that there are other gods for other people. And you'll meet people here like that. They're, I mean, there are, there are churches, um, they, they call themselves churches, universalist churches and other places that, that believe that, that the God that you worship is fine for you, but the God that I worship is fine for me. But what we believe is that one God created all things, created all of mankind in his image, and he is sovereign over all. And if he's sovereign over all, if he created all, then the hope of the gospel is for all. And it's up to us to be a faithful witness of that. Does that make sense? So the people who witness, which is all believers, the path of the witness, which is suffering, the power of the witness, which is the Holy Spirit, the peoples in need of a witness, which is all nations, and then finally, I want us to see that we have to have a certain passion of a witness. It has to be a certain passion. And we find that passion in Jesus. Little, little love for the king of kings produces little passion for the fulfillment of the king's mission. Simply put, guys, if you are not desperately in love with Jesus, it stands to reason that you're going to be you're going to have little concern with telling people about Jesus. There's a simple truth about human beings. We talk to people about the things that we're interested in, right? The things that mean the most to us, we spend the most time talking to people about. Right? Like so, Tuesday morning, if you don't care anything about college football and everybody's running their mouth about Alabama and Clemson, you're like, bro, I don't, I don't care. It's football. Who cares? But... If you like to say roll tide all the time and you are obsessed with Alabama football, you wanted, you may not have wanted to talk about the game, about the game Tuesday, but on Monday you wanted to talk about it, right? If you were watching The Bachelor instead of, um, instead of watching the football game, shame on you, but um, if, if you want to talk about The Bachelor, what's the, Colton, is that his name? Colton, and um, I saw some chick on there who, who introduced herself with an Australian accent, but she, <laughs> bro, she ain't from Australia craziness. Solid strategy. It reminds me of when Ross was teaching his first class with a British accent on Friends. Um, so, hey, whatever. Hey, you do what you got to do to make a first impression, I guess. But here's the point. Point proven, right? Like, the things that mean the most to us is what we talk about. Like, we don't just go into a conversation with our best friend about something that we don't care about. We talk about what we care about. And guess what? All of us want to tell people what we know. As human beings, we want to tell people what we know. If you are really knowledgeable about something, you're going to find ways to tell people about it, right? Like, you, know, you know the people that I'm talking about. Don't name any names, but there are people. Like you could be having a conversation, um, you know, about uh, the office, and somebody knows a lot about um, thermodynamics, and they're going to try to work in, like, hey, when I was, um, you know, back in grad school in 84, um, had this class. And, like, it has nothing to do with Dwight or Shroot Farms or, or Creed or anything else. It has to do with, hey, let me work in what I know. 
right? Let me work in how, uh, when I was in Cal 3, let me work in, uh, you know, all these differential equations and whatnot, and all this kind of stuff that I know that you don't know. Or maybe you know something that nobody else knows about. Maybe you've been entrusted with a secret. Or maybe you know that hot little piece of gossip that nobody else knows about. Man, you want to tell people, don't you? Anybody have a secret right now that they wish they could tell somebody, but they know they can't? Quit, quit playing. Y'all know, yeah, see, Jack knows stuff. You know stuff, right? But it's probably about the person sitting next to you, right? You know stuff that you wish you could tell, but you know you're not supposed to. But it's killing you that you can't tell people. You guys, listen to me. You have the greatest truth in the history of mankind. And it's that even though you are a sinner deserving of separation from God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to die in your place. And that as a result of that, there is hope for you. And because there's hope for you, there's hope for the person sitting next to you. There's hope for the person sitting next to you in English class. There's hope for your coworker, for your teammate, for your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. There's hope for the person sitting over in Ethiopia right now. There's hope for the person in Myanmar. There's hope for the person in Kazakhstan. There's hope for the person in Peru. There is hope for the for everyone around the earth. And you have that message of what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for mankind. But here's the truth. If you don't care about it, you're not gonna tell people about it. If you don't care about Jesus and you don't care about people, We'll keep talking about football. We'll keep talking about The Bachelor. We'll keep talking about that little piece of information that we know about. We'll keep talking about ourselves. We'll keep talking about whatever else it is. But the truth that I've come to realize is that if we are desperately in love with Jesus and we have a passion for loving people, how much Jesus loves people will come up in our conversation. And then it'll be reflected in our lives. And guys, this passage is the basis for the church in the New Testament. That we have an incredible truth to share with people. It's, it's a truth and a message of hope. And the church is here to tell people about it. The church is here to point people to Jesus. And it's very simplest forms. We've made it very complicated. But in its very simplest form, the church has always been about pointing people to the saving hope of Jesus Christ. And so that's where I want us to start this semester. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing about it, about how amazing the love of Jesus Christ is. All right, let's pray. Father, God, we thank you, God, for the message of hope. God, I pray that every student in here has embraced the hope that is only found in you. And God, if they haven't, God, I pray that through this series, God, that we would be transformed by your incredible love for us. God, I pray that you would give us opportunities, and God, that you would give us the passion to tell people about who you are. And God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. You guys can stand and worship together one more time.